So the first two views of the incarnation that Pastor Steve has already covered were adoptionism and Arianism. And those two views were somewhat similar because people who, who argued these two positions, they had no problem admitting that Jesus was a full human being. What they had trouble with was believing that he was also full of God. Welcome to Tea with the Preacher, the message series from Fairfield Presbyterian Church in Mechanicsville, Virginia. Today is Sunday, December 11th, 2022, and we continue our Advent sermon series, Views of the Incarnation. Pastor Sandy reads from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, before she talks about the heresy of docetism. Scripture text this morning comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Little children, you are from God and have conquered them. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. So today is the third installment of our series on heretical views of the incarnation. I think Steve might have had a different title, but that's way I look at it, the heretical views. And what I always do when I'm uh, approaching a subject that I think is difficult is I sort of like to define the main, I look for the definitions of the main words. I'm a very, um, I'm very fond of my dictionary. (laughs) And I like to look things up just to make sure that uh, when I learned about docetism, I was in my first semester in seminary and that was a number of years ago, and so I had to go looking up to refresh myself on what it meant. So I thought we would start by defining the word incarnation, because that's what we're talking about. So when I looked that up, I got this definition. The incarnation is defined as a person who embodies in the flesh a deity, spirit, or abstract quality. So when we say Jesus incarnate, We are saying that Jesus embodies in the flesh God. That Jesus is God in the flesh. That's the incarnation. And that definition fits with our Christian theology. Because as Christians, we state that Jesus is fully human and fully God. Both at once, at the same time. Jesus didn't. He wasn't God here, and then he was man here, and then he was God here. Jesus was always fully God, fully human, 
and fully God. I don't want to confuse you by mixing up my sides. <laughs> so how can we explain the incarnation? How do we explain it easy to people? Well, that's been plaguing believers for thousands of years because other religious faiths accuse us Christians as, um, as having more than one God because they say, well, you have, you have God, then you have Jesus, and then you have the Holy Spirit. Isn't that equal three? But we believe in what? The, the Trinity. Our God is three in one. So no matter what we're talking about, one God. And that's what we believe at our core. So as Pastor Steve said a few weeks ago, the persons who came up with these different views of the incarnation that were eventually labeled heresies, they were good people who were trying to explain these very different concepts. And they were trying to explain the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And so the overlying issue and debate of the relationship between God and Jesus has been difficult to explain from the very get-go. And in the early church, divisions had arisen um, around different views. And the view that Pastor Steve presented last week was Arianism. That was a particularly popular view, so much so that it was causing great division in the church. And because of this large rift that was occurring in the church over these different views, the Emperor Constantine called a council, and he called it in Nicaea in the year 325. Now, the reason it was held in Nicaea is because that's where he was living at the time. So he called them all to him. He didn't go out and find them. He called them all to where he was. And um, he had 300 bishops that he called to come together and they had, uh, there were two reasons why he called them together. The first reason was he had conquered all these peoples, he had all this territory, and he wanted it all to be united, right? So he thought, well, if these, all these peoples and cultures, if they all had one religion, that would be the best. And right now, my mother's a Christian, and I think that's a pretty good faith. So they're all going to be Christians. That's what he decided. So, but there were these rifts. The Christian church was sort of divided on these different views. So he said, you all need to come together and you all need to agree. You're all going to agree. We're going to put it out there. This is, this is what a Christian believes. And so that's what happened. Now, I don't know how long they were there in Nicaea. Uh, as I was thinking about that, my husband said, well, think about being in Congress or Senate and you're trying to pass a particularly uh, conflictual bill. How long does that take? It can take years, right? I don't think it took years. Um, but we do know that when they finally came, what finally came out of the Council of Nicaea was the uh, very familiar Nicene Creed. But it didn't come out of just one council. It came out of two. So they met in 325. Then they met again in 381 to sort of tighten up some things that they left loose and some things that um, they had to add that they had missed. So can you imagine being in those discussions? It might be a little bit like you're feeling now, a little bit sleepy. 
I thought for sure I'd put Chloe to sleep, but she's not asleep, so I don't know. Maybe we've disturbed her a little. I don't know. Um, but I imagine that there was a lot of head head nod, head nodding and head shaking. There was probably some red faces and some pounding on the table, you know, as people tried to get their point across. But I don't think anyone had bad intentions. They all just, you know, really wanted to understand this as best they could. And uh, when I was thinking about that, I, I was thinking about my grandson who's eight, Lex. Uh, when we talk about, sometimes he'll ask me about things like what happens when we die or, you know, easy things like that. He'll ask me, and he's a thinker. And every so often he'll say, okay, enough, Nana, my brain hurts. That's all I can take in. That's, that's enough. And I think when we try to put into words to explain God and the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I think that's what happens. I think we just get a little befuddled, and maybe our brain hurts. And that's because there's a mystery to God. Because we are human beings, and, and these things of God are are, are divine, and they're, and they're difficult for us in our own language to explain and to think it through. And the Apostle Paul talks a lot in his writings about the mystery of God and mystery in the faith. And so there's one particular passage where Paul talks about this. It's in the letter to the Colossians, and it's chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. And this is what he writes. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So where does all the mystery of God reside? In Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you know, You've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know me, you know God. And I believe that's where faith comes in for us. Faith can help us believe in and see what's seen and what's unseen. Faith helps us bridge that gap. We might not be able to explain it just exactly, but faith helps us to believe it. It covers those things that are too difficult for us to understand right now. And it tells us that God and Jesus are one. So when the Nicene Council finally ended, they came up with the beautiful Nicene Creed. Now, um, my experience in the past with the Nicene Creed has been, that one's really long. Do we have to say that one today? The Apostles' Creed is so much, so much shorter. But... We're going to have a chance to say that together. It's our statement of faith today. I want you not to just gloss over it, but really read those words, what you're saying there, because they have amazing depth and meaning and theology, which is language about God. There's a lot of theology in the Nicene Creed that's amazingly beautiful if you pay attention. Don't read it now. We'll get there. So before we look at the Nicene Creed specifically, I was supposed to preach on docetism, so I want to do that for a little bit. So the first two views of the incarnation that Pastor Steve has already covered were adoptionism and Arianism. And those two views were somewhat similar, 
because people who, who argued these two positions, they had no problem admitting that Jesus was a full human being. What they had trouble with was believing that he was also fully God. Docetism and the one Steve will talk about next week, Gnosticism, they're at the opposite end. These views have no problem believing that Jesus is fully God, but they don't understand how Jesus can also be fully human. So we're just taking a turn there. And the reason I'm breaking it down is because that's the way my brain has to break it down to understand it. The particular view of docetism stems from the idea that Jesus only appeared to be human. He was, he was, yes, fully divine. He was God on earth. But he didn't have a physical body. He just sort of appeared human. Uh, it reminds you of a ghost, you know, just, just the appearance of something, but not really there. But if Jesus didn't have a physical body, then his death and resurrection mean absolutely nothing. Because God can't die, right? If Jesus had no physical body, then why should we marvel at the fact that he rose from the dead three days later or that he endured the horrible suffering at the crucifixion? This heresy attacks two of the most foundational concepts of Christianity. Docetism doesn't work because we have plenty of scriptural evidence that shows that Jesus had a physical body. And in fact, in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus was very careful to prove to the disciples after he was resurrected that he was real, that he had, that he died in, in the body. And um, a couple of things that tell us that is in John chapter 20, do you remember? Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. There would have been nothing there if there was no body. Jesus eats food after the resurrection, something a ghost can't do. He also gets exhausted, which wouldn't make sense for someone with a fake body to do. And on the cross, he expresses his thirst, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Docetism doesn't work because Jesus needed a physical body to make the most important miracle the world has ever seen to make it matter. He could not be fully human and fully divine without a fully human body. He could not be tempted in the same way that we are tempted without a body. He could not fully understand the human experience without a human body. One of my favorite passages in the letter to the Hebrews states, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If Jesus hadn't lived on earth as fully human, where would we be without grace and forgiveness and salvation? As Pastor Steve mentioned a number of times in the last few weeks, if we were to embrace the heresy of docetism, we would take away the effectiveness of the cradle and the cross. And they are both central to our faith. So docetism is out the window. It's not the way to go. So let's return to the Nicene Creed. You can look at it now. It's on an insert in your bulletin. I just want to read to you um, a few words. I have, you know, the Nicene Creed is in our book of confessions. And I have one that I studied in seminary that has a study guide. So I just want to read to you a few of the words that the study guide says about the Nicene Creed. It says, the creedal statement made very clear that the one who became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth the Word, the Logos, the Son, was no creature, no lesser divinity. Rather, he is God of God, light of light, of the same substance as the Father. The term being of one substance with the Father is the critical point. For us, the terms Father and Son appear to imply a generation gap, right? First comes the Father, then the Son is born. But the Nicene Creed said, no, this has nothing to do with generations or order of birth. This has to do more with the existence of the Father and the Son always having been existing together. There is no time difference. Because Jesus was not created by God, the Nicene Creed uses the language that Jesus is the only begotten. Son of God, not created like we are, but begotten of the Father. Our knowledge of human reproduction is very different than what is stated in the Nicene Creed. It's a completely different kind of thing because Jesus is made of the same genetic material as God is. Uh, in our language, it would be the same genetic DNA. Jesus is made of the same stuff as God. And Jesus is not a creature. Jesus is the Son, the only begotten, who for our sake became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. So the creed gives proof that Jesus is fully God. And it gives proof that Jesus is fully man because they ha it also has this language when talking about Jesus in that long uh, paragraph in the middle. By whom all things were made, through Jesus all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was also crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand. God the Father. This is the good news of Christmas. On this day, God
God, through Jesus the Son, came down from heaven, willingly and completely became flesh like us, was conceived, yes, in a miraculous way, but was born in a manner just like each of us. Then God, through Jesus the Son, lived a human life just as we do, except that he managed to do it without sin. He lived a completely unblemished, blameless life, and then willingly died on the cross for our benefit, to bring us salvation from our sins. And then Jesus rose to eternal life. And like the beautiful song we like to sing at Easter, because he lives, we will live also for eternity. Hallelujah. God is with us. Merry Christmas. We should be sure take the opportunity to come and adore Him whenever it is possible. Amen. Now may all blessings, honor, glory, and power be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tea with the Preacher. To find more information about Fairfield, visit our website at fairfieldpcusa.org. Next week, we'll talk about the most familiar of the heresies, Gnosticism. If you like what you've heard today, we invite you to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite listening app. 